Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love you to open it now to 1 John chapter 3. I mentioned in chapter 1 that 1 John is organized loosely around two great theological truths. God is light and God is our Father. In both cases, John introduces the concept and then very carefully unpacks a variety of logical and obvious implications. In chapter 3, we are meeting the second of those theological truths, that God is our Father. And John begins to tell us that therefore, his children are going to act and incline in particular ways. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. In the first two chapters of the letter, John was telling us that God is light. He is holy, majestic, life-giving, and sovereign. Here, he is talking about how God is Father. He is near and loving and kind and invested. These are the great pylons of Orthodox Christian faith. It isn't Christianity if you aren't steering between these cones. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That is the path of Orthodoxy. If you lose hold of either of those two markers, you're going to end up on the rocks of heresy and apostasy. Here in 1 John 3, John wants them to understand that if they are on the old path, if they are persevering in the gospel they heard from the beginning, then they are God's children now. That isn't something you become if you finish the journey. That is something you are now. F.F. Bruce is helpfully here. When God calls, his call is effectual. People and things are what he calls them, closed quote. Isn't that amazing? The moment God calls you, you are what he calls you. Meaning that you aren't what you did yesterday. You aren't what you said this morning. You are what God called you in eternity past. Praise the Lord. And being that, being the children of God, we inevitably attract the animosity and hostility of the world. He says that in the second half of verse 1. That is the immediate reality for all true children of God. But then in verse 2, John begins to direct our eyes a little further down the road. He begins to speak about the future. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. So already we are God's children. We are the apple of his eye. We have an intimate familial connection to the creator of the universe. That is amazing. But John says it gets even better. One day when Jesus appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 
Hear that, brothers and sisters. One day you will be like Jesus. That's almost blasphemous, isn't it? One commentator says the expression grazes the edge of deification, but stops short of it, close quote. John is almost saying that we become gods. He stops just short of that, but still what he does say is amazing. We're going to be like Jesus, and we're going to be with Jesus. The two, of course, go hand in hand. The future is going to be fantastic for the true children of God. John Stott says here, it is enough for us to know that on the last day and through eternity, we shall be both with Christ and like Christ. For the fuller revelation of what we're going to be, we are content to wait, close quote. So Stott says, we don't know everything we'd like to about our future as the children of God, but what we do know is amazing. We will be like Jesus and we will be with Jesus at his appearing. So this is the good path. This is an incredible path. Walk in it. The future is glorious, John says. Verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Colin Cruz says here, the hope of being like Christ in the future expresses itself in an effort to purify oneself to be like him in the present, closed quote. All of Christian ethics really is about the slow but certain process of becoming who we are. We are the children of God. We are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And because we have the Spirit of God, we do, in fact, slowly but surely begin to bear the family likeness. John unpacks that further in verses 4 to 9. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, much of the material in these paragraphs parallels teaching found in 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. Some of these implications that John is drawing out are similar to implications that he drew out to the theological reality that God is light. These are overlapping and related concepts. Here, John is telling us that real believers renounce sin— because of what it is, and because of who they are, and because of what God has done for them in Christ. In verse 4, he tells us that sin is lawlessness. Stephen Smalley explains the meaning of that phrase. He says it implies not merely breaking God's law, but flagrantly opposing him in satanic fashion by so doing. As such, it is to be renounced by the children of God, closed quote. So you hear that? It's the same application. It's the same activity, but for a different reason. In the first go-round of John's letter, we were told that real believers are renouncing sin because God is light. Here we're being told something very similar. They're renouncing sin because they are the children of God. God is their father, and it would be wrong to take sides against God, their father. Sin is rebellion. Sin is satanic. Sin is taking sides with the enemies of God. God is at war with sin. He sent his son to get rid of sin. That's what John says in the next verse. He says, You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 
The whole mission of Jesus was about doing away with sin. He was at war with sin. The parallel expression in verse 8 makes that very clear. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So how could anyone in their right mind, how could anyone who really knew the Lord say that sin doesn't matter? How could they do that which Jesus came to destroy? That would be to betray our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That would be to take sides against one's own family. And a real believer would never do that. Real believers are waging war on remaining sin. They know what it is, and they know who they are. In verses 7 to 8, John divides the world into two camps, the children of the devil and the children of God. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, John isn't saying anything new here. He made the same point in his gospel. People behave in line with their identity. Slowly but surely, the children of God start behaving like God. They grow into the family likeness, whereas the people of the devil grow into that family likeness. So if you see people who are justifying sin and rebellion and who are drifting further and further into lawlessness, then you are looking at the children of the devil. But if you see people who are renouncing sin and aligning with God's judgments and precepts, then you're looking at real believers. Real believers just cannot go down certain roads. John tells us why in verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Are you hearing that? Apparently, if you are a real Christian, God has embedded something in you that will not allow you to keep on sinning. The seed of God is in the real believer, and therefore, he cannot keep sinning. So what is this seed of God? The Word Bible Commentary provides the best explanation of this that I can find. It says that this expression, the seed of God, may be taken to mean the divine seed or nature, which is implanted in the person who is spiritually reborn and which is responsible for the Christian growth and potentially sinless character of each believer, closed quote. So there is a principle or nature or a life-giving power implanted in the real believer at conversion that is responsible for our future growth and that propels us toward a potentially sinless character. It is like that lane keep assist function in newer cars. It pushes and nudges us back toward the center of the road. Thanks be to God. Verse 10 functions as a sort of hinge in the chapter, summarizing the first implication and preparing us for the second. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the real believer is renouncing sin, and the real believer is loving his brothers and sisters in Christ. John begins to unpack that in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, 
that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Once again, John is concerned to demonstrate that the path they are on is the original path of the Christian gospel. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We presume from the beginning here means roughly from your first hearing of the gospel. The gospel as you've known it has always included the entailment that you love one another. As John records Jesus as saying in Gospel of John 13, verses 34 to 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Closed quote. Likewise, right from the beginning, you were told that the world would not be joining in this love. On the contrary, the world will hate you and despise you and will even try to kill you. John 15, 18 to 20 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you, closed quote. So just like you heard in the beginning, real Christians love one another and are hated by the world. There has always been enmity between the people of God and the people of the devil. And according to John, this goes all the way back to Genesis 4. Cain hated Abel because his deeds were evil and his brother's deeds were righteous. That's how it's always been, and that's how it still is, John says. Put simply, they hate you because you make them feel guilty. They hate you because when you say that you believe in marriage, it makes them feel guilty for sleeping around. They hate you because when you say that you're pro-life, it makes them feel guilty for sacrificing babies on the altar of convenience and career. They hate you because when you say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, it makes them feel guilty for continuing in their rebellion against their creator. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Here John says that the nature of real Christian love is based upon the pattern of love that God demonstrated in the life and death of Jesus Christ. Christian love is not lip love or sentimental love or theoretical love. It is body and blood love because that is how God loved us in Christ. The real Christian is willing to lay down his life for his brother. Now, of course, that won't be necessary most of the time. So in lieu of that, the real Christian is willing to lay down his possessions in order to care for the poor and the needy in our midst. That's the call. 
But responding to that call goes against just about every natural instinct of the human heart. John begins to talk about that in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Now, verse 19 is a little bit tricky to translate into English. What does it mean to reassure our hearts or to persuade our hearts before him? The Pillar New Testament commentary is very helpful here. It says, The readers must persuade their hearts in the presence of God so that they do not succumb to the meanness in their hearts and refuse to offer material assistance. This persuasion is to be undertaken whenever our hearts condemn us, that is, whenever their hearts object to legitimate calls upon their generosity, when they are, in fact, in a position to respond, closed quote. Are you hearing that? John is basically saying that there is a battle going on inside the heart of every real believer. The seed of God in them reaches out in compassion toward other believers, but their fallen nature still inclines toward meanness of spirit and self-preservation. We want to keep what is ours. We want to look after ourselves. So we argue against generosity. And John is saying, you know you're a real believer if you can press through that and do that which is completely contrary to fallen human nature. If you can give to people who can't pay you back, if you can help people who have nothing to offer you in return, if you can love people whom you have no genetic, biological, or inherent connection to, well, that is all the proof you ought to need that you are the children of God. David Jackman says here, Every time we come across a genuine case of a Christian in need, our love for God is tested, closed quote. And according to John, God himself is watching to see how we respond. That seems to be the meaning of verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. God cares about the outcome of that battle in your heart. He has invested in that battle. Remember, according to verse 9, the seed of God is in you. He planted something in your heart which ought to tip you in favor of impossible generosity and care towards your fellow believer. God is stronger than the fallen instincts of your heart. So a real believer is going to win that argument. A real believer is going to love his brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's going to please God, who will then move closer to them, which will in turn result in more answers to prayer and a greater sense of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst. That's the conclusion in verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So zooming out here and looking at chapter 3 as a whole, we might say that the more we renounce sin and the more we love one another, the closer we will be to God, the more confident we will be in prayer, and the more we will experience the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. 
Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.